This is 20 by 20, a podcast from Newcastle University's School of Architecture, Planning and Landscape, where we ask leading architects, urbanists, designers and thinkers to reflect on the ideas, inspirations and interests that shape their practice and their views on the present and future of architecture and cities. It's 20 questions in 20 minutes with me, Owen Hopkins. Can you tell us who you are? where you're speaking from and what you do. My name's Anne Thorne (laughs) and I'm an architect and um, I'm speaking from my passive house in Essex. My name's Fran Bradshaw and I'm an architect. I work with Anne and I'm speaking from my passive house in Hickling in Norfolk. You're both part of the collective who established the Matrix Feminist Design Cooperative in 1981. Could you talk a little bit about how that came about and maybe going even further back, what led you both into architecture and in particular to studying here in Newcastle? Wow, that is a long time back. (laughs) (laughs) Anne and I met in our first year at Newcastle and it was a very different kind of institution from how it is now. Um, But what was unusual was that there was quite a large, relatively at that time, a large number of women students but our experience of being women together there was more in the sort of spirit of rebellion than than kind of being encouraged. Then we both went on to do our second part at what was then the Polytechnic of Central London, now Westminster University, where, um, and Anne was already a mother by then, um, but um, I got involved with this organisation called the New Architecture Movement. Well, I think we both did actually, but I was probably had a lot more time to go to meetings. The new architecture movement was a a really radical kind of critique of not just architects role but the whole building industry and was quite involved in setting up RCOC as a kind of opposition to um, the RIBA and also sort of supporting architects as kind of workers you know so a lot of stuff around conditions of pay and so on and also supporting building workers. But what became apparent was that there was a big kind of gulf around understanding the experience of women in the building industry. And so a group of us started organising within NAM. And then that, through quite a sort of long process of meetings and so on, was how Matrix um, kind of got together. Maybe you should go on from there, Anne. <laughs> well, we've, we started first with the Feminist Architects Network which was just a discussion group. But actually what became apparent was that there were quite a few community groups who really wanted to work with architects who were thinking differently. And so first of all, we got um, approached by a group called Stockwell Health Centre, who were having, um, they were building a new health centre in Stockwell and they wanted some women to look at the plans and to look at, to think about the design and to actually give them some ideas about how it became could become more women-centred. And so that included everything from actually making sure that there was access for buggies to breastfeeding rooms to all sorts of things which hadn't been thought about at that point. And we looked at all of those things and and discussed how the building could be changed. And then gradually more people came and asked us for um, help. One lot was Dalston Children's Centre where my son was actually in the nursery at the time, which was in a squash, and it was in a really sort of quite um, run-down building. And so we managed to persuade Hackney Council that they should give us another building. And um, Hackney Council, first of all, just gave a 
building which was completely inaccessible for people with disabilities and the whole point of Dolls and Children's Centre was that it should encompass life for everyone so people with disabilities who had children, children with disabilities, people from different minority ethnic backgrounds and the building that we were given in the end we walked around Dalston. I mean it's a long time ago now you couldn't walk around Dalston and find anything empty but we found an empty bathhouse and said that we wanted to use that because it was all on one level and had the spaces that we wanted to use and after much um, arguing and fighting we got the centre and that became something that Matrix designed. At the same time roughly we were also approached by Jaganari, an Asian women's group in Whitechapel and um, they wanted to design a building and uh, they were part of um, a large group of a consortium of community groups but they were the only women's group involved. It was very important in the Asian community that there were separate facilities for women they had been told by the GLC, as it was at the time, that they could um, have a, a piece of land and that they could put a porter cabin on it. And we said, well, what are you going to do in the porter cabin? And they told us they were going to do dance and drama and crafts and English as a foreign language and have a library of mother tongue books, have all sorts of different, you know, do cooking facilities so that they could do cooking together, childcare, all sorts of things. Um, and we said, well, that's not going to fit in a porter cabin. So I'm just thinking about all the times that people have said, you know, a porter cabin is what we want. It's yes. been a really, that's a really interesting starting point for so many community projects, yes. isn't it? Like, what um, do you actually really want to do here? Um, and particularly for women who are so used to making do. Yeah with whatever they're given. And uh, and we said, well, let's think about this and see what we can come up with. So we came up with a four-story building with a big extension at the back for the nursery and um, a court, central courtyard uh, for them to use. And we put in a, a grant application to the GLC, who, much to our amazement, gave us the money we asked for to do it, which was a lot of money. It was nearly a million pounds, which in those days was a lot to pay for everything and um, we built it <laughs> that was very exciting and by that time matrix was about 10 people but there were two different groups so there was a book group and a sort of practical group that was actually doing architectural work from an office and so and then there were a lot of women who were involved either in both of those things or in just one of those things. And we spent a lot of time talking about what was the best way to organise not just um, the environment, but how to organise ourselves as a practice and talking about equality. And we all got paid exactly the same, regardless of whether you were a year out student or you were a qualified architect. And, um, well, we kept going for a long time, <laughs> for nearly 10 years, I guess and designed a lot of buildings, nurseries, community group buildings. And we also did something which I think is a, there's a real shame that there isn't anything like that now, which is um, there was the Association of Community and Technical Aid Centres, and we were very much involved in that. So that was actually talking to community groups about the building they'd got and helping them work out how to make it better or how to find a building. 
um, we wrote a book about childcare buildings, which was a sort of step-by-step -step guide about how to do childcare buildings and so on. And then in 1991, I decided I'd really had enough of that. It was very hard work and it was, it was very interesting, but it, it was the whole thing of not just trying to design buildings, which I think is difficult enough, but also trying to um, run a practice in a completely radical way was 24 hours a day and I had two small children and it all just seemed too much to me. <laughs> not forgetting the kind of political background. So it was exactly. a really serious recession and mm. um, the way that the architects, you know, so when we started architects had a guaranteed fee and that was all abolished by Thatcher. So mm. people were constantly trying to undercut fees. So you didn't have time, you, you know, it was really difficult financially to run the practice. Mm. And there was sort of no, no, you know, zero fee bids going in, weren't there? Yes, and the community... It was really horrible. The community of. funding, which had been happening through the GLC in London in particular... Yeah. Um, GLC was abolished. So was it was abolished. a whole series so of really difficult went, kind yeah. of political... Mm. Yeah. So um, that was the beginning of Anthorn Architects, or skipping a little yeah, bit. Yeah, so that's when I started Anthorn Architects in that... <laughs> climate instead much easier doing it on you yeah. know with, with a few people rather than a whole gang yes <laughs> although lots of those and also I mean we didn't even joined you didn't they and I mean we, yes it me, is. lots of other people yeah yeah, yeah. so lots yeah. of matrix people worked with us at worked Amazon. with us yeah very much a kind of continuous, uh, uh, continuous and we weren't idea about how to work and and we still we still continue to work collectively in lots of ways although we did pay ourselves differently but we we always had meetings where we discussed what we were doing with um, everyone and thought very carefully about you know training and those things which are extremely important for women in particular and I think by and large we've been um, a women's practice but we've had a few men working with us some very special men. <laughs> So it was less of a break than a kind of continuation of those ideas and that spirit and that and that ethos, but focused more on designing buildings. Yes, um, and more um, a, a preoccupation with designing buildings, but also more and more we thought about the actual content of buildings. I mean, that was something that had come up at Matrix. So there had been lots of issues about asbestos and so on, which had had come up. It was just at that point where people realised that asbestos was actually a problem. And also well, stuff about toxic paints. And um, yes. And um, so we gradually, we took that forward. And, and the treatment. I think yeah. that was a really big thing. Yeah. yeah. And all of that, those things were things that we really promoted. And, and through working with community groups and particularly with children and so on, looking at the effect of those materials on, on children and people generally and asthma and eczema and all of those things and what what the effect of that was but also I think then going back actually for me one of the things that I sort of realized more and more was um, actually how much Newcastle taught me about about building science in fact in those days there were some really good people who were teaching building science who and I'm you know one of the things I remember is a house that was built in Milton Keynes which was it wasn't Passive House because Passive House, I don't think, existed in those days, but it was insulated so well that heating was minimal. 
and uh, Dr. Wiltshire was doing a lot of work on that. There was also um, Alex Hardy, who was doing a lot of work on interesting, you know, solar panels and um, all sorts of things, actually, which, you know, you sort of forget that that was happening in those days, that people were thinking about those things and that they were already talking about climate change as an issue, something that we seem to have just let dribble past. And that's something that your your work is is particularly known for its mm. approach to yeah. sustainability. Mm. Could you talk a little bit in in more detail about your particular approach to sustainability as designers, the principles that you use, and a sort of the follow up to that is how do we make this approach to sustainability more mainstream? How do we kind of begin? I mean. It's, it's very much at the forefront of, of people's minds right now, but there seems to be this gap between, well, how is that actually going to be enacted? Yeah, I mean, you have to think of the, the Rome report was written in the 60s and already there was a lot of stuff about alternative energy. I mean, and you did a, when we were at Westminster, you did a project which was all about using energy from the Thames and... Um, Heat pump. So, and there was also we were also like self-build was also quite a strong thing and thinking about using timber in a very you know kind of yeah Walter Siegel we involved we invited to come to talk at Newcastle didn't we and do you remember there was that series of talks mm. we organised with some really mm. great you know apart from Walter there was mm. that crazy guy the jelly jelly beams guy yes. and the, yeah. I think what's very hard for young people to to sort of understand now is this feeling of real. So it was a really hopeful time. You know, we really thought that we really thought that we could change things, you know, mm. and that these stuffy old guys who were telling us that we should get married and have children and all this kind of nonsense. We just thought they were just on another planet, really. So mm. it was a very exciting time. It was only really by the 90s with this sort of massive repression and kind of white, you know, endlessly using up all your energy that it started feeling like actually maybe this was really going to be hard and it was going to be a long slog. So by that time, we were really embedded in the kind of world of alternative technology kind of sustainability. So, um, you know, we were using suppliers like the green building store and the natural building technologies. Kind of the, These were sort of suppliers and you know thinking about building systems who were sort of like the same age as us but they weren't architects they were you know working in the building industry more generally and we were also involved from the 80s in the AECB the Association for Environment Conscious Building um, which was very was has always been like this really good focus of research and and um, you know ongoing practice so for us it was kind of central and that but then in terms of working with community groups, I mean, we were often working with people who were really at the kind of uh, sharp end. So ill health all, almost always came up. Mm. So for instance, when we were working at Angeltown, I remember talking about, um, so, so at Angeltown, there were like five different groups of architect design teams, five different design teams. And so they all had very different approaches and ours, we were, you know, much more focused on sustainability. And what was quite good about that was that you saw sort of different approaches and there were good things about each of the groups. But what we did with the same budget as everybody else was that we managed to produce buildings, you know, retrofit buildings that cut the energy by 60% or something. And when we were talking about doing that and the materials we were using, it was 
the residents who were completely behind us all the time, who were saying to the council, yeah, we don't want to do your tradition the way you always do it. We want to try this way. And we found that all, all the time, that it was always the client groups who were really sort of asking us, you know, I've got this daughter who's got terrible asthma and I don't know, but it does seem to be better in this place than in that place. Is that to do with the building? Is it to do with the off, you know? And so we found quite soon we got feedback from, um, you know, a headmistress who said, oh, we use the extension that you've just built as a place where we can calm children down because children behave differently in it. And so all these kind of anecdotal kind of um, feedback that we got from the groups that we work with really sort of built our sense that, you know, what we were do was doing was right. But I think the other thing, Fran, that you haven't yes. said, which is really important, was that because we were working with those client groups, we were very conscious of what it would cost them to run the buildings after. And that was hugely important for community groups because, again and again, you know, community groups have got a wonderful building and then it's cost them so much to run that they've just collapsed and disappeared. And so thinking about fabric first and not about complicated heat technologies, uh, yeah. technologies was really important and, and thinking about how you know how is a community group that's going to come back there's going to be a new person appointed in five years time or three years time or you know how are they going to it's run this building to understand yeah. and it's all got to be straightforward and easy to understand and and that also led to a lot of work that we did with University College London who researched our buildings afterwards and we got feedback from them yeah. which then informed the buildings. Do you want to? And, and the other thing that was really important I think was that we found that we could design buildings using you know we're always on tight budgets and that we could design buildings that were environmentally sound that were and well built and well you know long lasting easy to maintain using sustainable approach and so that gave us a lot of confidence um you know it doesn't have to, it it doesn't have to be expensive yeah. and that's still the case too just you know working with sort of passive house approach that what we found is that if you start if you if you understand the systems and you you start with those ideas in mind, you can design economical buildings that really work. So in a way, we got feedback from all sides and the, the people who were least useful were always kind of the bureaucrats, the insurers, the, you know, the people who listed their product as you couldn't use it because it wasn't non-slip, even though we found, you know, that it was worked much better than the product that was labeled that but was basically a kind of plastic product but all those kind of things were always the things that we were fighting you know that we were, we were sort of dealing with and I think in a way that that is even more difficult now than it was 10 years ago. Um, Although I think that to some extent the horrors of Granville have actually brought out some of the issues that we were we kept saying to people don't we don't want to use those sort of insulation materials we don't think we think they're off gas and we don't think that they're good and anyway when they do get on fire you yeah. you know the most horrendous gases come off them and um so using natural materials is a much better way to go and actually again and again you know people have said things like oh well if it's made out of wood fiber then it's going to burn and in fact it doesn't it 
it self-extinguishes and just getting those things across. On the straw bale building, for instance, mm. where we've done a couple of projects and, mm. you know, there's, I wanted a PhD student to do some work on um, the data that we've collected from monitors in within the straw. There's, there's very little information about how moisture performs in some of these natural products. And so we've got some really good data. And actually, I've got some um, good analysis back because the tutor in the end, who's someone we've worked with over a very long period, did it herself because she couldn't get the financial backing that a PhD student now needs to do that work. And that's just, a, you know, really shows how, you know, the way that the financial institutions now work um, means that, you know, you can only get research done in, in, in the building industry if it's backed by big organisations. And those big organisations are backing oil-based products. Yeah, I don't know how we're going to get the kind of input into the building industry, which is a non-oil-based financial research legislate you know all our regulations and and legislation it all comes from private organizations who which mm. are all funded by the businesses that make money and i think that has just become such a problem and grenville has ju just it's so shocking how that's all been you know unpicked the kind of way that the wrong products were sold for the wrong purposes is there an opportunity for architects to reclaim some of the kind of the parts of building of designing buildings that they've kind of ceded to other uh, disciplines. I mean, I kind of there's there's a, such a kind of strong current of thought in contemporary architectural culture that looks back at the the glory days of the post-war era and what architects achieved and, and influence they had at that moment. And I wonder if climate change and this predicament that that we're in with it and the way it's forcing us to rethink basically everything. Mm. Is there an opportunity then for, for architects to, to take a lead? There is, but it's but I think <laughs> there's a big but because one of the things um, that I'm really concerned about at the moment is how much um, the crafts are disappearing from all schools from everywhere because the smaller the classroom the easier it is to teach. And anyway, you can teach weaving on a computer, can't you? I mean, you know, these are the sort of superstitions that you don't need clay to learn pottery because you can do a three-dimensional thing on a computer. But actually, in the building industry, the one thing that does have to happen is that everybody has to know how to build something. You know, again and again, people have talked about prefabrication and that being the answer to building. But... Even with prefabrication, somebody really has to understand how to make something. And if they don't understand how to make it, they don't know how to do it. And you have to be able to think with your hands. And if you can't think with your hands, you cannot build a building. And I don't care what that building's made of. People have got to learn that skill. And they're not. They're, those skills are being lost. And people are not learning that from an early age. And I'm not against computers in any way. I think they're another form of pencil. You know, you can do fantastic things with a computer. You can also do complete rubbish with a computer, just as you can with any other drawing instrument. But if you don't understand how you make something, then things will not be made well and they will not be made properly. I mean, in the building industry now with air tightness and all of these things, somebody has got to be able to 
do things really carefully and really well understand things three-dimensionally yes yeah. you know that is so interesting isn't it how yeah. the kind of skills that we need now on the site are actually they're actually craft skills they're the skills mm. we get by um by making something whether it's um clothes which are a wonderful three-dimensional things to you know mm. or, or model making or whatever mm. but you've got to actually understand three-dimensional space to good to do good airtightness detailing mm. for instance mm. And the, but the other thing that I was going to say is about contracts. So mm. at the moment, the whole system of design build contracts and also accept, you know, accepting the lowest tender is a system which, which, which enables bad work. There's mm. no, absolutely no doubt about it. So uh, any was, industry that is completely reliant on policing itself is not going to be a good industry, and especially an industry that makes as much money as the building industry does. But I mean, we've been in, both been involved in projects where we've gone by alternative routes to to working with quite big contracts where you don't accept the lowest tender. You go about things in different ways, and it's really, really difficult to do. Mm. Um, so that would be my first thing, that architects should be really pushing for, you know, it's time to push back against these contracts that don't allow for a good quality of work. So yeah. I, I would go right back. I think Anne's right that the, both the skill base and the system that we're working with are things we have to deal with. I, I've got a couple of, I guess, related questions to close with. Firstly, there's the exhibition, the Matrix exhibition at the Barbican, which actually is still on. Mm. Uh, there's the nomination that Matrix had for the Reba Gold Medal, it's put forward by Part W. And it seems that it's getting the recognition that many people have seen it as deserving. Mm. I want to ask a kind of very obvious question about this. What, how, how do you feel about it? Is this sort of vindication? Is this frustration? And I also wanted to ask a related question but about the influence of what you did with Matrix. Obviously, we've talked about all of your amazing subsequent work with Anton Architects, but are there other practices or groups operating now who you kind of see as, you know, picking up that torch? I think what's really great about the exhibition is just seeing how, you know, young people coming and, I mean, I think it's really inspiring and it's really hopeful. And we've really noticed it in the office as well. Young people coming and being really interested and really picking up these ideas and taking them further. So that's, for me, that's by that's just by far the best thing. And the same thing about the book that's going to be republished in, in the spring that people are, you know, we had set that really interesting discussion with some of your students who were saying about, you know, what's similar and what's different. And, you know, it's your students who are the hope really. And if they can pick up these ideas and take them forward, that's just wonderful. I've been astonished. I, I've been along a, a few times just passing by and, and dropped in just to have a look because it's there's quite a lot of material there. And I'm just amazed by how many people are in the exhibition every time I've been. And that, I think it's fantastic. And, I, and it's really interesting hearing people talking about it and being excited by those ideas. And Thorne, Fran Bradshaw, thank you very much. Thank you. thank you. You've been listening to 20 by 20, a podcast from Newcastle University's School of Architecture, Planning and Landscape. Stay tuned for more episodes, write a review or give us a rating 
and be sure to follow us on your preferred podcast platform.